Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for singing with us. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, we're in the last part of um, this series, Under the Sun. We're going to get to that in a second. Before we do, just a couple housekeeping things real quick. Um, some of you have been wondering over the last four weeks or so, um, where's Pastor Mark? Um, well, he has actually been on sabbatical for the last four weeks. Our uh, full-time pastoral staff has um, every few years gets, um, gets a sabbatical. So that means he's been away resting, uh, recuperating, re-engaging, re-whatever um, over the last four weeks. He'll actually be with us, uh, back with us next week. But in his absence, um, and I don't want you to do it right now, I actually want you to find them and say something to them, okay, personally. Um, in his absence, um, Cindy, who has led us for the last four weeks, and Chris Ireland, our tech director, have had to step into that gap and fill the role of Mark. Yes, it takes two people to fill that little guy's role, right? So... Um, obviously, we want to welcome Mark back next week. We're excited about that. But I'd also love for you to find either Cindy, Cindy or Chris and just tell them thank you uh, for stepping into that role and, and helping us um, lead and, and get things organized. Over there. It takes a lot of people. We, 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 we all understand that, right? It takes a lot of people, um, but they have had a little bit more um, responsibility and had to exert a little bit more energy. And I mean, Cindy is a mom, a mom-to-be a wife, and she's in school right now. So she's got a lot on her plate. So find Cindy, find Chris, and tell them thank you from you, okay? All right, part six of Under the Sun. Um, here's where we will start. Dr. Ed Stetzer um, is a professor at Wheaton College and a missiologist. It's a big word, um, but that just means he helps the church um, get and stay on mission, um, the Big C Church, um, and uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018, he did um, uh, an interview on NPR, and it was actually the Wednesday after the 2018 Tuesday midterms. And um, NPR was doing a spot on the midterms, and they wanted a panel of people to come and represent, and um, Dr. Ed Stetzer was the evangelical representative, or sacrificial lamb, depending on how you view that. Um, and and he, he, he went on and he talks about this, um, about making sure, or he knew he was talking to millions of people out in NPR land. Like he understood that. Um, so he was very careful with how he responded. He's very careful in his responses. But then he talks about a question that he got that he wasn't prepared for because he didn't get the questions beforehand. He was just on there, um, had no idea what was coming. And here's the question that he got that he was not prepared for. They said, Dr. Stetzer, what do you think about evangelicals hitching on to somewhat controversial political figures? How would you like to be asked that question on national radio? Okay. And he talks about how he thought through um, very, very careful. And here's how he responded. And I quote, here's what I think about that. I don't think evangelicals should hitch to a political leader. I think evangelicals should hitch to Jesus Christ. Which is an answer that you would expect a Christian professor and missiologist to give on national radio. And, and he was, he, okay, that's the answer, right? Moved on, went on with his day, got to his office the next day and opened up his email. And in his inbox was hate and rage from evangelicals. 
This is the world we now live in, church, where that answer, I think evangelicals should hitch to Jesus Christ, is the wrong answer from evangelicals. You heard um, of the nuns, right? Um, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. Um, the nuns are um, a group of people or, or a, a population of people that check the box, none of the above, on um, religious affiliation surveys. It's a, it's a somewhat new-ish growing demographic in America that people like Dr. Stetzer um, are studying. The Pew Research Religious Landscape Study in 2014, this is seven years ago, found that nuns now comprise 23% of the American population, 56 million people in America. That was seven years ago. I can tell you they haven't done the study again yet, but it's more than that over the last seven years. So America is already and is increasingly becoming a post-Christian nation, much like Europe is a post-Christian nation. Nation. John O'Sullivan, former editor of the National Review, described post-Christian this way. A post-Christian society is not merely a society in which agnosticism or atheism is the prevailing fundamental belief. It's a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have either been rejected or worse, forgotten. So a post-Christian society is not where the majority of people have never heard of Jesus, never heard of the Bible, have no preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian. A post-Christian society is a place where people know about Jesus. They know about the Bible, but they don't care. They don't care, or they've forgotten about all of that. The Barna Group does a lot of research on this, and they, they tell us that 48% of Americans now fit in the post-Christian category, which means half of the people you work with, half of the people you live around, one out of two people you see at Walmart or the mall or, or just out in public, they view themselves as post-Christian. They know about Jesus. They know about the Bible. They, they, have, they, have, they have dressers full of t-shirts from youth camp that they went to when they were teenagers. They just don't care. They have no desire to be a part of the church. And I know what some of you are thinking because you've heard it in the news. Some of you are thinking, those crazy millennials. It's not millennials. It's Gen X, boomers, and the greatest generation. They're all leaving the church too. It's not just a millennial problem. The church, if it hasn't already, is losing its voice and its way. The church, if it hasn't already, is losing its, its way. It's losing its voice. The question I want to ask today, what do you do about that? Can you do anything about that? Is there a way to correct that? Is there, is there a way to reverse any of that? And I'll just tell you right now, I wouldn't have brought it up if I didn't think there was. I wouldn't have asked the question if I didn't think that there was a way for us to reverse it, if there was a way for us to deal with this. So we're going to look into God's word today, see what he says. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, pull that out. I would love for you to follow along as we go through this. We'll throw these verses up on the screen for those of you here in the room or in the tandem venue. If you're watching online, we'll put them on the screen as well. And before we start reading, I just want to give you my thesis, okay? I'm convinced. I'm convinced of this. Our problem is not in the way that we're engaging politically, our problem is the way that we've been engaging people, okay? 
It started way before the evangelical church started engaging politically in the various ways that we do. And and I, I think we can clean some of that up, but that's not really my area of expertise, okay? I think it goes back to the way that we've been engaging with people for years, well before we started engaging politically. And if we can change the way that you and I engage people we might just be able to regain our way and we might just be able to regain our voice. And I would say our current cultural moment is a great moment for the church to do this. It's perfect time. So Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 1, goes like this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Most commentator, commentators will, will equate house of God to church. And they see verses one through seven as a primer for how Christians should function, how we worship, how we approach God, what the Christian life is supposed to look like. But remember, this is in the Old Testament. There was no such thing as Christians in the Old Testament. And as you read what the teacher says, you kind of start to question that because he's, he's going to talk about four things. And I actually want to show you the third thing real quick and show you how Jesus talks about that thing and he actually reverses it. He blows it up, all right? So let me show you what I mean. Show you what I mean. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 4. This is the third of the four things we'll look at. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Pretty straightforward. If you make a promise to God, keep it. But then you go to the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian constitution. And a number of times in that sermon, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's talking to a a primarily Jewish audience in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when he says, every every time he says, you've heard that it's said, he's referring back to something in the Old Testament. So Jews, historically, you've been taught X, but I tell you, it's Y. It's not X. And Jesus does this over and over and over throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5.33, here's what he says. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. He's literally quoting Ecclesiastes 5, 4. And he's saying, hey, you guys remember this? You you, you remember you you heard since you were a little kid. If you make a vow, keep it. But I tell you, and then, then he turns it upside down, which Jesus always does. He turns it upside down. But I tell you, Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth. And he goes through all of these different things that they would swear an oath by. Don't swear an oath by anything. And then he summarizes it this way. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Don't miss this. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus quotes Ecclesiastes 5.4, and says that mindset comes from the evil one. Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. It's inspired, and yet Jesus is saying, yeah, that's actually from the evil one. Does that make anybody else uncomfortable? Like, what's going on here, right? What in the world is happening? We said from the very beginning of this series that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is giving us a perspective from under the sun, a secular mindset, a horizontal mindset. In most cases, it's a cynical mindset. 
He's showing us what life looks like when you factor God out of the equation. He's showing us what it looks like when you think that God's just not really involved. Yeah, maybe he created everything, but he's not involved anymore. So in this section, he's telling us what religion looks like when you're operating from under the sun perspective. He's giving us an under the sun perspective on religion. And you'll, you'll see how cynical he gets as we work through this, but it's not just cynical. It's not just cynicism because the teacher is teaching an old covenant religion. He's teaching, he's living in a day, an age where, where sin was taken care of one time a year on the day of atonement. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, this, this place where they believed God's presence dwelt, and he would sacrifice an animal and the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of the sins of the entire nation. And that's, that's how you paid for sin. If you sinned in between that day and the next day, the weight of that sin was on you until the day of atonement. That was old covenant religion. That's what's in his mind when he writes these words. But see, here's the problem. Churches all around us, not everyone, like I don't want, I want to dog on every church, right? But churches all around us, evangelical churches as a whole, Protestant churches as a whole, Catholic churches as a whole, tend to still teach this. They tend to still teach Ecclesiastes 5. And it's one of the reasons people want nothing to do with the church. So I want to, I want to show you four things that the teacher talks about in Ecclesiastes 5 and how this message is alive and well today and what we as individuals and we as a church should do. So first thing, first thing is be careful. This is the first of four things. Be careful. Be very, very careful, okay? This, this is verse one. Verse one says, guard your steps, which is actually what you're supposed to do when you go to Allen Fieldhouse, right? Right? Paid all who enter here, right? Be Careful, watch your step, guard your steps when you go to the fog and when you go to the house of God. Now, why do you need to do that? Why should you be careful when you go to the house of God? Well, the implication is you're, you're on holy ground, right? And you're not so holy. So you better be careful. Watch your step. Take heed all who enter. Be careful. One of the loudest messages of religion is don't mess up. And if you do, pretend like you haven't. Right? I, I read this a couple weeks ago. Some of you all are mad you have to wear a mask to church, but you've been wearing a mask to church for years. <laughs> Can't say man. You ought to say ouch. The message... The message of religion, get cleaned up. Get cleaned up. Put on your Sunday best, right? Put on your mask, not the literal one, the metaphorical one. Pretend, right? Pretend you didn't get in a fight in the car on the way to church. Tell your kids to behave. Tread lightly. Just be careful. That's what we see in verse 1. Be careful. Second thing, be quiet comes up in second part of verse one, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. And cynicism is on full display here. People looking to sacrifice, people looking for forgiveness. He calls them fools. He says, you, you should just really come and listen, be quiet. Do not be quick with your mouth 
Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Just, just shut it and be quiet. Why? Why should we do that? Why are we supposed to be quiet? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. God is transcendent. He's way, 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 way far away from you. He's distant and you're just here on earth. He can't hear you. That's the implication. And notice, he doesn't say anything about God speaking to us. He just says, be quiet. We're supposed to be quiet. He's looking for somber silence before the God who lives far, far away. Be quiet. Verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. So I've, I've, I've faced this. You're struggling. You've you got a lot on your mind so much that it's affecting your sleep. And you want to go somewhere where you can talk about it. You want to go to somebody that you can talk about it, who can carry that burden with you. You'd really like to gather together with the people of God. The teacher says, no, just be quiet. Just be quiet. Don't bring your troubles to the house of God. So be careful. Be quiet. Number three, be responsible. Be responsible. It sounds so good, right? But this is, the, this is a prevalent message these days, and it's also the one that Jesus directly refutes. This is, this is what one of my pastor friends refers to Midwestern moralism. Okay, verse four. Here we go. When you make a vow, you've already read it. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. So here, part of, part of being religious is making promises to God and follow through, right? I'm going I'm to promise God 10%, pre-tax even, and follow through. And I'm going to promise God I'm going to read my Bible every day and pray every day, and I'm going to follow through. I'm going to promise to quit that sin and follow through. I'm going to promise to talk to that person, no matter who it is that sits down right next to me on the plane, and follow through. Promise God, follow through. Promise God, follow through. It's Midwestern moralism. Promise to be a good person and follow through on your own, in your own power. <laughs> Does anybody see the problem with this? What's the problem when you don't follow through? Okay, so mass confession, my hand's already up. How many of you have ever made a promise to God and not followed through? Mm -hmm. Some of us are honest. Right there. And that, you know, you know what there's, I'm not going to talk about that right now. He actually, he addresses that, okay? He, he addresses not following through. Look what he says. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Temple messenger was the one responsible for picking up the dues, the tithe. So at the beginning of the year, you promise to give a certain amount of money to the temple for your, for your vow to God. And so the temple messenger shows up at your house and says, hey, um, it says here that you promised 1,000 shekels and we've only received 400. Oh yeah, that was, that was a mistake. I, sh I, I, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to make that promise to God. Look what the teacher says happens when we do that. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? <sighs> so if you make a promise to God and don't follow through, God's going to be angry with you. So much so that he's going to destroy the work of your hands. He'll destroy the ability for you to earn 
income. Wow. Can, can we all just say thank you, Jesus, for reversing this? Jesus said this is the attitude. This is the perspective from the evil one. This is not God's way. This is not God at all. And yet, the prevailing attitude in the church, tell God what you're going to do for him and follow through. Be responsible. Fourth thing, be careful, be quiet, be responsible, be afraid. If you haven't picked up on that already, look at verse 7. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Just fear him. Okay? Many, many commentators will tell you that the word fear here can mean to be afraid or it can mean to, to have reverence or awe. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That sometimes fearing God is standing in awe of him. So both of those um, are in this semantic range for that word. So to figure out what it means, you have to look at the context in which it happens. So he's just finished saying, if you fail to keep your promises to God, he'll think you're a fool, he'll be angry, and he'll ruin the work of your hands. <laughs> So when he says, fear God, what do you think he's talking about? Be afraid. Be afraid. That's what he's telling us. You're going to fail. Nobody bats a thousand. So just, just be afraid. This is not new. Okay. Jonathan Edwards, famous preacher from the 1700s, had a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And here's just a little snippet from that message. He says, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. And the sermon gets really heavy from this point on. This is, this is the teacher. And Ecclesiastes, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is using similar tactics to scare people into behaving, which is still happening in churches today. All over this city, all over this country, all over this world. And so I want, I want to go on a little bit of a journey here with you, okay? So, so hang with me. Um, Jack and Jill are an imaginary couple in our community, okay? Live in Topeka. And they're nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And you wouldn't think that there are a lot of Jack and Jills in our community because, you know, we're in the Bible Belt. This is Kansas, right? Actually, demographic studies tell us a different story. There are tens of thousands of Jack and Jills in our community. So let's say Jack and Jill are invited to church by one of their friends, and they're thinking, you know, we're not really church people, Life's good. Like, I don't, I don't think we really need religion. But yeah, that, we got some questions about God. There's some things that have happened in my life that I'd like some answers to. So sure, we'll, we'll, we'll go to church. They, they accept the invitation from their friends. They're, they're nervous. They're hopeful. They're excited. Right? Get a call on Saturday before Sunday from their friends. Hey, Jack, I uh, just wanted to give you a little heads up on what to expect tomorrow whenever you come to church. Well, that's awfully kind of you. And he starts, uh, you just need to know most people dress up, so like think suit and tie. And he goes, uh, I don't even have a suit. Guess I'll go buy one. And, and, and Jack, just so you're aware, it's kind of a reverent service. So 
Come in reverently. And, and by the way, your kids will be in service with you, no pressure, but all the other kids behave really well. So can you have a conversation with them and ask them to be quiet and reverent? Because we don't want little kids distracting anyone. And Jack hangs up the phone. Why did we say yes to this? Be careful. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. And then during the message, Jack leans over and, and asks his host a question because he's curious. And his host says, shh, 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 it's not time to talk right now. Just listen. Be quiet. Sermon was entitled, 10 Steps to Godly Living. And Jack and Jill are trying desperately to write down all the steps because he wants to figure out what it looks like for, to, to live a godly life. But he missed a couple, which makes him terrified because at the end of the sermon, the pastor makes it sound like God's pleasure towards Jack is incumbent on him executing all 10 steps. Be responsible. Jack and Jill leave. They go out to the car with the weight of the world on their shoulders. They sit down, they look at each other, and they think, that was terrifying. They got the message, be afraid. You see, Jack and Jill went up the hill in hopes of living water. But law came down. Jack left with frown. And Jill came tumbling after and I wish I could say that Jack and Jill's story is 100% fictional. But I've heard enough stories to know it's not that far from the truth. I've heard some of your stories. And I know it's not that far from the truth. So you ready for some truth? See on a hill outside Jerusalem one day? the very Son of God, was thrown down onto a slab of wood and they nailed him to it. And they took that slab of wood, they put it on a post and they tied it to that post and they took his ankles and they put one over the other and they drove a stake through both of his ankles. And they took that cross and they slammed it into a pre-dug hole and the Son of God hung there in agony Blood dripping crimson all around the cross. And just a few moments before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. And he died. The Son of God died. They took him down from the cross and they put him in a tomb for three days. Until... The Father raised him in power. And he walked out of that tomb, arms wide open, and announced to the world, I'm going to make everything new. The cross is the dividing moment in history. Everything changed in that moment. Everything changed in that second. And everything's different. The cross is the great dividing moment in history. After the cross, everything changed. So here's what I wish. Jack and Jill would have heard the day that they went to church. This is Hebrews chapter 4. There's a new way 
There's a new message. There's a new life available to Jack and to Jill, to you and to me. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to ask, what's that there for? Okay, it's there to remind you of what came before. So we actually have to back up a couple verses to verse nine to get a feel for what's happening. Verse nine, the author of Hebrews says this, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. You can rest from your works. You can rest. You can stop making your vows and trying to keep them because the Christian life is a life of rest. It's resting in the finished work of Christ. It's resting in his resurrection life. It's a life of rest, Hebrews says. And since it's a life of rest, let us therefore make every effort, let's be eager to enter that rest so that no one will perish, no one will fall down by following their example of disobedience. He's talking about the Israelites. The Israelites, the nation of Israel, they were offered rest. They were offered Canaan. They were offered a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, but they were disobedient. An entire generation didn't get to enter into it. And the author of Hebrews to a primarily Jewish audience is saying, don't follow their example. Their example was to not trust God. That's, that's, what, that's how they were disobedient. They didn't trust that what God's best was, was God's best for them. And so they didn't get to enter the promised land. So he says, trust God. And in trusting God, you will obey him and you will enter into the rest he's made available through the cross. Verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. Now, we usually assume that that is talking about the Bible, and it is, okay? The word of God. But you know what else? John tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. So this makes more sense when you start thinking about that. So listen to it through that filter. For the word of God, Jesus, is alive and active. Is that true? Yep. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it, this is the masculine form of it, so it could also mean he. He penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, or he, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus knows everything going on inside of you right now. And we're getting ready to read everything we think that we've hidden has already been seen. Verse 13. <clears throat> Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What does that sentence do to you? That last sentence, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If that terrifies you, you should keep reading. If that terrifies you, I'm afraid you've been living in Ecclesiastes 5. I'm telling you, if you're living in Ecclesiastes 5, there's good news today. There's really good news today. Back to where we started. Since this rest is available, since Jesus is alive and active, since he's bringing the hidden things in your life into the light, therefore, be careful, be quiet, be responsible, be afraid. Is that what your Bible says? Mine doesn't either. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest, the focus is immediately taken off of you and placed on the great high priest. See, the, the high priest in Israel was just the high priest because he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for sin because people kept sinning. Jesus is the great high priest. The, the Greek there is actually mega high priest. I like that translation better. He's the mega high priest because he only had to die once to make atonement for sin. So now we actually get to live forgiven all the time, not just one day a year. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This is the Christian life. Write it down. Tattoo it somewhere. Jack and Jill, are you listening? Here's the Christian life. I'm with Jesus. I'm with him. I, I, I'm with him. I, the only reason I have eternal life is because of Jesus. I'm with him. The only reason we get to experience rest is because of Jesus. I'm with him. The only reason we're forgiven of sin is because of Jesus. So I'm with him, Jack and Jill. You don't have to live in Ecclesiastes 5. You can live in Hebrews 4, 14. I'm with him is the Christian life. But it gets better. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus knows how hard life is. He knows. He knows. And when you fall into temptation, when you choose sin, his response is not, what 